0: No American would stand on a soapbox and shout out how easy it is to deal with the federal government. A small office deep within the White House apparatus has been coaxing agencies to reduce what's officially known as administrative burden on citizens. Things like difficult forms, procedures for getting on airplanes, obtaining a loan. The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, known as OIRA, as a progress report on a year-old effort, OIRA's Associate Administrator, Sam Berger, joins us now. Mr. Berger, good to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it.
0: And let's talk about this initiative. It's about a year old, but it was a formal way for OIRA, and I guess really the White House, you might say, to get agencies to think in these terms. Fair to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, so coming in, you know, President Biden had a, a couple things that he was focused on, a range of things, but two big parts were, one, improving the way that Government delivers services to the American people, which we might call customer service, right, customer experience. Also, focusing on equity, making sure that when you, you look at groups that have been shut out of the process for too long, that we're bringing them in, that we're thinking about their needs, and they're trying to be responsive to them in the way that we're responsive to everyone else. And, and this, uh, administ- this effort sort of gets right at it. It's one of these things where uh, the career folks here at OIRA looked at these priorities and said, well, we have an authority that fits just right. Namely, the Paperwork Reduction Act. So, the Paperwork Reduction Act is this is this law that basically tells us at OIRA to make sure that when you're filling out a government form, that's designed properly, meaning that it's not asking for more information than it needs to, that it's as clear as possible, et cetera. Traditionally, people have thought of that as sort of applying to you know the forms that businesses might fill out when they're doing a range of things, but should equally apply to people when they're trying to get access to a government service, access uh, to a benefit that they're eligible for. And, and the point of this effort is to say, we need to be doing a better job here. We need to be focused on these issues. We need to be thinking about those burdens. And then we need to be looking for ways to reduce them. So that, that's sort of the impetus for, for where this all came from.
0: And is there an objective way to measure administrative burden? Some forms, you know, tax forms, for example, just need a lot of information. And because of the regulatory or Rules or legal apparatus behind them just can 't be simplified too much
1: yeah it 's a great point, so obviously we can measure the time it takes and one of the things that they talk about in the academic literature that, that we talk about is this time tax, and you know part of the problem is figuring out how much burden there is and there's a couple of reasons that that can be a challenge. one is we shouldn 't just look at how much time it takes you to fill out the form. we need to be thinking about how much time it takes you to collect the relevant documentation to identify any of the eligibility requirements. For the form, and in some cases, to take the various steps that are required. Maybe you need to have an in person meeting. Well, if you're working across town and you have kids and someone's got to get childcare, there's a cost there, there's a time to, to, to do that. All of these things should be added up. And so, one of the things we told agencies to do was a better job of, of covering the full panoply of cost that folks face the reason being is if you don't understand how challenging it is how long it takes it's harder to get people motivated to fix it if you think a form takes people an hour to fill out well maybe you're not going to pay your attention pay attention to it. if you realize it takes them 8 hours you know, then it's really important. The second thing I'll say about this is, you know, we've probably all experienced. You go to talk to somebody, uh, you know, who's working at, say, the DMV, and you say, you know, I need to fill out, a, you know, you do X, Y, and Z, and they're great. Fill out form, you know, 27C. Then you get it stamped over here. Then you come back and fill out a 14F, and do, and you know, they're going through, and you're just desperately trying to write it all down because what for them is, you know, sort of like what they do every day. They know all these forms. Of course, they're very conversant. For us is a totally new experience. It can be confusing, challenging, frustrating. And so having agencies do a better job. And then how do they do that? One big way is hearing from people, right? Actually listening to the folks that are trying to go through these forms finding out the sorts of challenges they're facing, also finding out questions that might make perfect sense to folks in the agency, but when you're looking at it fresh, you just don't know what to do. I think we've all probably hit a sure. question on the phone where you're like, that doesn't, that's not me, and but I don't even know what to say. And I don't wanna say something wrong and then I can't get this benefit or I get myself having to get on a phone. It's all this complicated stuff. So having those conversations, hearing from folks is a really critical aspect of trying to make those changes. So step one, doing a better job of actually capturing it. Um, and I, I should also mention, In addition to the sorts of burdens that I'm talking about, things that you can quantify.
0: We're speaking with Sam Berger. He's associate administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is part of the Office of Management and Budget. Yeah, Interesting. Elaborate, if you would, on some of those non-quantifiable factors.
1: There's also harder things like the psychological burdens. It's just frustrating to put in your information for the fifth time on another form when you just did it and mailed it you know, away to the agency, you put your stuff away and they come back and say, no, we need it again. And so capturing that cost as well, if you can't put a number on it, that's real. I think we've all felt it. So trying to get agencies to do a better job of, of covering the full panoply of it. And then Doing a better job of reducing them, right? So first you identify the problem, then you figure out how to make it better. So that's sort of the underlying goal here.
0: And one way to find out too would maybe to ask your line employees, say your Social Security, ask the people in the offices or at the front desk, so to speak, if you will, even virtual. They know often better than agency management sometimes, fair to say.
1: Oh, exactly. And I think part of the thing is making clear to folks that this sort of, these sort of steps are valued, meaning that if you take time to figure out how to reduce burden, right, which isn't necessarily easy, right, you got to pull a whole bunch of people together. You have to understand all the various factors. Why do we ask for this information? And maybe in our St. Louis regional office, we don't need it, but actually over here, it's critically important. So what can we do? That takes a lot of time and effort. So making clear that that's valuable. And I think there's a couple different ways to do it. One is hearing from folks, right? When you look someone in the face and they tell you this is a real problem. There's a SSA disability, um, listening session about disability. And someone said, filling out this form is worse than getting cancer twice. Anyone who hears that says, well, this is a form we need to fix, right? And then you're motivated. Second thing though, is making sure that when you do that, you know, your boss is going to come by and say, great job. Your colleagues are going to say, I see you, I hear you, I appreciate what you're doing. And so things like this report that we just put out, that lift that work up, that highlight those success stories. Because a lot of times it won't be in while, we're always focused on where people can do better, which is important. But it's also important to recognize where people have done well, to encourage folks to keep up that work. And, and that's also quite frankly why things like, I'm so excited of this opportunity to talk to you, because lifting up these stories talking about folks that have done a great job, you know, whether it be at Social Security or or USDA or other places to make people's lives easier is an encouragement to everyone to take those same sorts of steps. So it really is building this this culture um, of burden reduction, a virtuous cycle where people are reducing burden and getting support to even go back and do more. But you're exactly right. You got to talk to the people on the ground, the people that are helping fill out the forms, the people that are filling out the forms, people are dealing with it because, They're the ones who are going to really understand the pain points and and have ideas about the best ways to fix it.
0: And just talk us through a couple of the highlights that you have in the report where agencies have made progress. One that caught my eye was the first one, DHS efforts to reduce burden on individuals using mobile driver's licenses as IDs when they go to the airport.
1: Yeah. So this is a great example. And I think, you know, even taking a step back, something very interesting that DHS did was setting a goal across the whole agency. So DHS interacts with about as many people as any federal agency. When you think about everything from TSA, uh, immigration services, everything, you know, there's tons of contact points there. And what they said is, well, look, let's put a target of 20 million hours reduction across all of DHS. So you set a goal, and then you tell everyone, figure out how to do it, right? And that's a great model. It makes it clear that from the very top DHS is focused on this, and that everyone across the agency is responsible for being a part of it. And one of the things that led to was almost a, a preemptive burden reduction effort, seeing the you know the sort of upcoming rise in um, mobile driver's licenses and identifying that without any sort of changes that could run afoul of existing requirements that DHS, DHS has around real ID. So starting to take the the step to work through what exactly it looks like to fix those problems, hearing from folks about the issues that might come up, being proactive there. Another example I might give is farm loans. Um, you know, these are critical loans that USDA gives to farmers. They can be critical lifelines, keeping their businesses operating, making things work. But they're really complicated. So they had basically 10 different forms with 29 pages of paperwork.
0: Holy cow.
1: Yeah, it took more than five hours to complete. That's an, that's incredibly challenging. But through a lot of concentrated work, dedicated time and effort by civil servants a- across the country, they were able to get that those ten forms down to a single 13-page document and nearly have the burden reduction. And then they didn't just stop there; they launched a new online assistance tool. So when folks are, you know, trying to access it, because I think we all know, you know, it, it's rare that we're filling out a burden uh, form, you know, nine to five. We got to fill it out on our own time, and, and Lord knows, for farmers, they got even more time that they're working, right? So, trying to find a bit where they can actually go in and talk to someone during their business hours that can be tough.
0: Yeah, come so, join me on the combine here, and let's talk about it.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, helping them use this new this tool so that when they access it, whatever time it might be, very early in the morning or late at night, they can help them work through the process and make it easier. There, kind of give them twenty four hour service, and, and making sure they can submit things paperless online. So it's these sorts of steps, I think, that, that can have a real impact. There's one other one. You know, I mentioned that SSA form. Obviously, it would be surprising if I mentioned that form and I said, and then no one did anything, right, <laughs> after folks had kind of called it out being so difficult. SSA has been doing a, a tremendous amount of work around reducing the burden in their you know, accessing disability programs. So it started with hearing from folks, all these listening sessions, understanding where the pain points are. But then they launched the ability to, to allow online submission of these uh, redetermination forms. Another thing though is getting rid of open-ended questions. So some of the questions there, um, folks found, you know, just very confusing, sort of like, you know, tell us about a typical day or something of that nature. It's hard and that creates all this stress. I don't want to get this wrong. So trying to get more concrete, make it clearer so that folks understand what it is that they have to do, the information that they have to provide. And then another big part of this is, is pre-filling forms, right? So a lot of times we in the government have the information somewhere and we just need to take a little time to figure out Where it is, so we can pre-populate it for you. Because if we know what your income is, we don't need you to tell us for the 80th time. You probably don't want to tell us for the 80th time. We can save each other a lot of effort, both sides, by filling out ourselves. And also, that makes it that reduces error. Right? We've all put in an eight-digit number, submitted it, or maybe you know whatever it is, and then realize we like transpose two things, and oh, we gotta go back and fix it. If that stuff's being pre-populated, you know, with that information, it's just going to reduce that kind of error. It's going to help us on the government side, too. So this is one of these things where we can improve program integrity, we can improve the customer experience, and we can improve take-up rate in these programs for people to get the benefits and access the services that they need.
0: We're speaking with Sam Berger. He's Associate Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is part of the Office of Management and Budget, and on the reginfo.gov site. There is a list of other types of information collection burdens that the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs is evaluating, and that is a long, long, long list. How are you going to get through all of this? Well,
1: well, look, we're not going to fix every problem in a day, but every day we need to make progress on fixing at least one problem, if not more, right? And that's what we're trying to encourage agencies to do. I talked about building up this virtuous cycle, making sure that from the top to the bottom of an agency, folks know a couple things. One, this work is going to be recognized and appreciated, but also this work is important, right? It might not feel so exciting to be like figuring out how to get five questions down into one. But when you understand the impact that that has on people's lives, when you have a chance to hear from people and say, thank you so much for making this form better. Now I can get this benefit that I need to put food on the table to keep my farm going, whatever it might be. So trying to recognize, you know, that we're humans on all sides. And so we need to create these this sort of environment that make sure that people understand what they need to be doing, that they're getting that positive reinforcement for doing it, and then that we're going ahead and doing it. And so, you know, we're gonna be on a uh, annual basis putting out a report that highlights this sort of work and that lets the public also see what's going on and quite frankly, tell us where we can be doing better. A big part of this is hearing from the American people, understanding where there are issues and where there can be improvements. And so I would just encourage folks when you see these opportunities for public participation, participate, because they really do make a difference. People say that this is a real problem. There's someone out who's going to be looking at that and trying to figure out how to fix it. And so you know, that kind of feedback, that kind of information that we can get from the American people is just critical to make sure that we're focusing on the highest value things, doing everything we can to improve the service that we're providing people. And that's why folks get into public service, right, to do that job. And sometimes it can just be helpful for them to understand where they should most be putting their attention and talents in order to make that kind of difference.
0: These data collection items that you are evaluating are organized by department and by large agency. They know you're looking at this, correct?
1: Oh, yeah. Agencies are well aware. I mean, part of what we're doing is also trying to make sure the agencies are talking to each other, finding out what folks – so there's a couple different parts of this. One is making sure agencies are talking to each other so they're hearing what other folks have done that have proven successful, but also making sure that agencies are talking – to themselves, right? Getting everyone in the same room so that they know not just what are the administrative requirements, but what are the legal requirements, right? Where is there flexibility for agencies to make changes? Where are there things that made sense 15 years ago and everyone's sort of just doing it and someone raised a hand and say, well, why are we doing this anymore? Does this make sense? getting people in those rooms, having those conversations is really how you move the ball forward. How are we taking advantage, obviously, of advances when it comes to utilization of of online and other new technologies to make sure that we're trying to make it as easy as possible for folks. So having those conversations, having that feedback, and like I said, this is something that folks are well aware, you know, we put out uh, some guidance on that, followed up with some clear kind of metrics in terms of what we're seeing folks doing. And, you know, we're going to keep following up on an annual basis. This is a thing that we're going to be doing, but it's, it's not just a once a year thing. It's once a year that we're taking stock of all the work we've done over that year. And that's critical. And I think folks recognize that. Quite frankly, folks are excited because they realize there's a real difference to be made You know, in getting those 10 forms down to one and figuring out how to pre-populate, you know, these sort of data fields and that that can make a concrete difference in people's
0: lives. And you found that the agency heads and also the high level career staff are interested in cooperating on this effort.
1: They're interested and they're excited. And I think this is one of those things where it's a proof point of like there's a lot of good that you can be doing in the world in a given day. Here's this is real. This is good. This is worth your time. And I think, you know, the DHS is a great example right from the top saying across this agency, reducing it by 20 million hours, they hit that target. And so having other agencies, you know, set targets, set audacious goals. And encourage that is exactly what we're looking to do. We see a lot of excitement and interest, and I think hopefully building off the back of this report, building off of folks like you paying attention to this and lifting it up, we'll see even more uh, effort, enthusiasm, excitement about making this, these kinds of changes and improving people's experience.
0: Sam Berger is Associate Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, part of the Office of Management and Budget. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard
2: work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure, mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted? the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, Even as the union leader, as ministry, it's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility, both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both, uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading
2: people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy Standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events, widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited. Okay. To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders, gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chance that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. The they are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, th- Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right, treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout
2: my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have Multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes, and it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. So you, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm
3: going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than The latter part, okay? I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my
3: grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith